I get it, I get it. Being a guy myself, I can't multitask either. I was just expecting more from the ladies in the room as they were sitting down to also be clapping at the same time. Well, hey, happy Resurrection Sunday, church. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go with me to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning, and we are going to, we have such an epic text in front of us, it is going to be awesome to jump into this. The title of the message is Risen to Reign. And here in Acts chapter 2, we get the first sermon ever preached in the Christian era by Peter, and we're going to pick it up in the main bulk of it in verse 22, and I just want to read it to you. I want you to see the power that's in this message, because Peter is so clear about what he's testifying to the men of Israel. Here's what it says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received the promise from the Father of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What a text. What a message. This, loved ones, is a master class in preaching. And might I just add, this is a master class in expository preaching, okay? I normally try to tackle a text a week when I preach. Peter's laying down three texts that he's explaining for us in this passage. And oh, by the way, uh, this message 3,000 people got saved as a result of responding to what was proclaimed by Peter today. And all of this is coming out of the backstory of Acts chapter 2. And if you don't know the story, this incredible thing happened where the Spirit of God was poured out and people were speaking languages that they didn't know previously, testifying to the works of God in languages that people from all over the place could understand. And Peter's trying to make sense of what was happening in that moment. And it's our big idea for this morning, what Peter was getting at. Namely this, that the kingdom of God had been inaugurated 
through Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. This is what Peter was saying. This is the big idea for our message this morning. The big idea of the text becomes the big idea of our message. The kingdom of God did indeed get inaugurated through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Peter's declaring to them in Acts chapter 2 to the men of Israel that this new era had come upon them, and it was here because Jesus Christ had conquered the tomb and had ascended to God the Father. And of course, the evidence of that being the outpouring of the Spirit, but listen, if you were a Jewish person listening to that message, what you would have thought was, wait a minute, the outpouring of the Spirit that the same Spirit of God who departed from the temple in Ezekiel and didn't return when the people of God did to rebuild the temple and the walls, that Spirit, the Spirit of God, is now being poured out, yes. And as such, the remaking of Israel, the remaking of the people of God had begun, and so Peter begins to declare to these people, biblically literate as they were, but unbelievers in the Lord Jesus Christ, here has, is what has happened. And with words that echo the restoration images found in Ezekiel chapter 37, which is an epic chapter, that promised a regathering of God's exiled people, that promised the reign of this Davidic king who would come and instill the dwelling of God with his people, all of that has come to fruition through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, if you want to see somebody become a Christian, it better include the proclamation of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. If you're unclear about how to share the gospel with someone, church, it needs to include Jesus' life, death, burial, and come on, resurrection. And so we're going to get to all that. We're going to get to his life, death, resurrection, and even we're going to get to his ascension today. And so I want to show you this piece by piece how all of this is unfolding the fact that Jesus is indeed the one through whom the kingdom of God is inaugurated. So we start with Jesus' life because Peter starts with Jesus' life. And he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God. And this is what we preached on Good Friday. He was attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So here's what's going on. From Jesus' birth, he was declared to be the Savior. He was declared to be the Messiah. He was declared to be the Lord, and he was declared to be the King. Now, what's going on in Jesus' life and what Peter's sermon highlights is the way in which these realities, these titles, began to be known in Jesus, starting with God, through Christ, progressively attesting to who he was. Through what? Through his miracles, right? That created awe and wonder in those who saw it. Because listen, when you see someone walking on water, you go like this. When your friend is blind and comes to Jesus and leaves seeing, you go, whoa. And then he calls them signs because, in fact, these 
miracles that Jesus had done were pointing to the fact that miracles weren't just the promise of the kingdom. Miracles were the actualization of the kingdom. It was for them to know that the kingdom of God had come upon them. So when they saw that the blind saw, and when they witnessed the deaf hearing, and when they saw the sick healed, and when they saw the dead raised, and when they heard of the spirits that were cast out, and when they heard of the hungry being fed, and when they heard of the captives being freed, every single one of those was a sign that the kingdom of God had come upon them. And here's the thing. They knew about it. They didn't need to be Uh, didn't need a speech from Peter defending these miracles. They themselves know, it says, what had happened. And as we discussed on Good Friday, what they needed to get an answer to was not whether or not these miracles had truly taken place through Jesus. What they needed an answer to is why, if this man was being attested to by God, did he wind up on a cross to be crucified and killed? We need Jesus' life because he displayed who he was. We also need Jesus' life because of his perfect obedience to the Lord in all that he did, fulfilling all the prophecies of the Old Testament. But we also need Jesus' death, and I want you to see this. Now, we did cover this on Good Friday, but I'm going to take it in a couple different ways. Jesus' death is clear in verse 23, that this Jesus, and this is what we talked about, Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the gospel is, in a sense, because of our sin, we nailed Jesus to the cross. That we could say, I did that. And the good news of Easter is that in spite of the fact that you did that to Jesus, God did that for you in love. And so you have this amazing juxtaposition here between that which was human responsibility and that which God had done. And yet in all of this, what the men of Israel would have been hearing was that the final long-awaited undoing of exile had taken place through Jesus' death. That's what Peter was trying to explain. You think about where the people of Israel had come from. They had returned to the promised land, right, and to rebuilding of the temple, The Spirit of God never came back with them, knowing that the reason they were exiled as a people in the first place was because of their sin, and so if exile of God's people was to be undone, sins would have to be forgiven, and lo and behold, isn't that what Jesus, isn't that what Peter preaches about Jesus at the end of this message? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You want exile to end? Forgiveness of sins has to come. That's how. Because listen, sin leads to exile. Exile is undone. When sin is undone, enter Jesus' death. So in Jesus' death to the people of Israel, he was speaking of, Peter, a new kind of exodus, a new kind of deliverance. The people of God being an exodus-shaped people constantly reminding themselves about how God delivered them out of their slavery to Egypt. Here in Jesus Christ, you have a new kind of exodus. See, because now all of these stories of the Old Testament are weaving together. When you look at the exodus in the Old Testament, what you will see is that the exodus and their deliverance out of slavery in Egypt wasn't a result of Israel's sins. 
but the Babylonian exile was a result of Israel's sins. And so you had a deliverance in the Exodus, and then you had an exile because of sin, and Peter is weaving these two new and complex realities of the Old Testament together to speak of this return from exile, this real return, this greater return, this freedom from the enslaving powers of sin. All of that is being accomplished through the sin-bearing, substitutionary death of Jesus for our sins. If you don't have Christ's obedience unto death, there is no basis to offer forgiveness of sins to anybody. We need his death. We celebrate his resurrection, but it's not complete without his death. No death no offer of forgiveness of sins. Without Christ's atoning death, the Spirit of God, who was sent by the Father and Son, would have no application of the benefits of Christ's death to apply to those who would receive Jesus Christ by faith. And so Jesus had to die, but here's the good news of Easter. Jesus had to die, but Jesus couldn't stay dead. Death couldn't hold him. The story doesn't end at Good Friday. Good Friday is good because Sunday comes and Jesus is raised from the dead. And so the kingdom of God is being established. What is Jesus doing? He is fulfilling what Israel didn't in perfect obedience. He is obeying all the way to death, death on a cross, which in and of itself is the merging of Old Testament pictures, a deliverance out of slavery. What kind of slavery? A slavery to sin which was the bigger picture that the exodus and the exile were pointing to all coming, converging upon Jesus who dies so that we could be forgiven of our sins and then death couldn't hold him, which leads us to the resurrection. And this is where we see in verses 24 to 32, Peter preaching about the resurrection. And I want you to understand because I've done this before where I've preached a message on Easter about the resurrection, and I've spent my time trying to prove to you why the resurrection story is a legitimate story that is, that is uh, believable and reasonable and plausible, and, and that's a good message for Easter. But it's not the only message of Easter. When I'm preaching to you guys, there's this need because you're so far detached from the times that the Bible is written to and the people specifically to Paul, Peter's preaching to, that we need that understanding of like, okay, this is reasonable and plausible, and I understand it, and there are defenses for Jesus actually rising from the dead, but here, Peter doesn't have a, let me prove to you that the resurrection is a historical event kind of message. He doesn't do that, because they all knew the resurrection was a historical event, You don't prove something to everyone in the crowd who knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Different crowd. They had been around it. They were all, look at verse 32, they were all witnesses. We don't have that, but they did. We need the, here's why Jesus' resurrection is plausible and reasonable and all that stuff, but for them, they just needed to know what did it mean that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so Peter's trying to tell them, here's the idea. I'm trying to tell you that the resurrection testifies to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Lord of all. 
And so he goes to verse 24, and he continues to preach, and he says, God raised him up. You crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is so awesome. The word pangs there is a word that normally applies to the agony of childbirth. Peter has a play on words going on here to say in a sense that what Jesus' resurrection pictured was a regeneration. That in his coming to life out of death, it was like a new birth happening. A new birth out of death into life such that he's declaring to them it was impossible for death to keep Jesus from exercising his eternal kingly rule. And then I love the defense. The reason why it was possible, you, know, you don't want to know why? You want to know why it was impossible that Jesus could be held by death? That was impossible because of the scriptures telling us beforehand it was going to be impossible. Like this book that we hold in our hands, Peter goes, on the accountability, on the, on the testimony of this book, because of what David said, we know it's impossible for Jesus to be held by death. And then he starts preaching, and he preaches, and where does he go? He goes to Psalm 16, and we have it, get it here. It was impossible for him to be held by it. Why? Because of what David said. And what did he say? I saw the Lord always before me. For he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh will also dwell in hope. This is David coming to the reality that death was not going to separate him from his relationship with God. And all God's people said, amen. But the issue with this is David seemed to be speaking of something that he and his life would not fulfill. For verse 27 says, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. See, David is the author of Psalm 16 here. Peter's referencing this. And the truth is, is that David himself saw decay. David himself actually died. Look at verse 29. Peter, speaking to them, said, brothers, I must say to you, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, Psalm 16, though David said it, it wasn't ultimately about David. In fact, he goes on to say, therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, listen to this, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you have this amazing just picture of all these Old Testament scriptures coming together and just coinciding, colliding with Jesus. The question would have been for the people of Israel at the time, how would God's covenant with David be maintained? And David was saying, foreseeing the resurrection of Jesus, that the only way God's covenant with me to have a king on the throne forever would be maintained, would be through resurrection from the dead for a son of David to rule forever over God's people. 
And then Peter's saying, that Jesus that y'all witnessed rise from the dead that appeared to more than 500 at a time, that's him. That's the king. That's the Lord. That's the Messiah. He goes on and said, this Jesus, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament in their witness to Christ's resurrection, fulfilling this complex of Jewish hopes. What's going on in Jesus' resurrection? It's so much bigger than maybe we even see as Gentile believers who aren't as astute about the Old Testament as the men of Israel were, despite the fact that they didn't believe in Jesus. Peter's bringing this together and minds are exploding that this Jesus is the savior king of David's line. This Jesus is the one who will reign forever over God's people. This Jesus is the one who brings blessings of forgiveness and peace with God through a sharing in his resurrection life extended to all who would come to Jesus by faith. Now, normally, the resurrection story, Easter story, ends simply there. Jesus rose from the dead. Yay! And then we all go home. But we miss a key part of the gospel narrative when we don't talk about the ascension of Jesus Christ. Truly, his resurrection is validated, confirmed in the utmost when the Son of God ascends to the right hand of God, so affirming and confirming the work Jesus Christ has done in the place of sinners to gather from sinful people, a people unto himself. And so if we're really following the story of the gospel as Peter preached it, then we will testify to Jesus' life, we will testify to Jesus' death, we will testify to Jesus' resurrection, but we won't end there. We will also testify to Jesus' ascension. So notice what he says here. He doesn't end the message at the resurrection. He needed to be exalted to the right hand of God. And so he says, verse 33, be, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So he's talking to them, he's telling them all the stuff you've been seeing, all this crazy work of the Spirit that you've been seeing in your midst, this is because Jesus has ascended to the Father and when he went up there, it was God affirming and confirming Jesus' work and together with the Father and the Son, they sent the Spirit as the affirmation that everything that Christ has promised to you is true and accepted by God the Father. And we need the ascension for that reason, for our assurance, for that confidence. The ascension is not a throwaway part of the gospel account. Jesus physically, bodily ascending to the right hand of God is essential to confirm Christ's work on our behalf. Jesus' ascension is essential to commencing his worldwide reign. Listen, the reason he reigns over everything in existence is because it makes sense when you understand where he's reigning from. When you reign from the heavens, it's all under your jurisdiction. 
When you reign from Sacramento, you're over a state. When you reign from the heavens, you're over everything. Jesus Christ commenced his worldwide reign, and Jesus Christ, in the sending of the Spirit, in the pouring out of the Spirit, on Pentecost, no less, was testifying to something incredible. So often, we think of the sending of the Spirit, and we don't connect the dots like the men of Israel would have done. Seeing Easter from a Jewish perspective, as this message was preached to the men of Israel, what we would need to understand is that Pentecost was associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. You remember Ten Commandments? Moses goes up a hill, he gets a gift for God's people, and he brings that law down, right? Now that law caused problems, not because the law was imperfect, but because you suck at it. Right? Like butchered it, like badly butchered it. And so you can be like, oh, the law caused that. The law caused that. It made me, no, the law didn't do anything. The law revealed how much of a sinner you are. The law was a gift. Now you fast forward to the outpouring of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and don't think any of this is by chance. Don't think it's like, oh, it's just random that it happens to be Pentecost, that the Spirit of God descends on the people. Now here's what's going on. At Pentecost, Jesus Christ, like Moses, who ascended to bring his people a gift of the law, Jesus Christ ascended to God to bring his people a gift as well, the Spirit of God, to regenerate and indwell his people with his presence permanently, to cause those who were sinners, dead in their trespasses, blinded by the God of this world, fruitless, in any way of pleasing God, would get the Spirit of God to cause them, cause us to walk in His ways. When Jesus was ascended, He came, He went up to send down the gift of His Spirit. So what the very thing the Old Testament people were missing, they had the law, they didn't have the means to fulfill it. Jesus now fulfilled the law and gives the Spirit so that we can walk in His ways. And that's just one of the many blessings of the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection, not to mention the fact that he also notes the fact that he's put down, he's putting down all of his enemies, and he quotes in verses 34 and 35 the most frequently quoted Old Testament verse of all passages used and revealed in the New Testament. Psalm 110 gets used over and over and over again. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus had already applied this to himself. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are made a footstool, are put down, both visible and invisible. And then Peter concludes in this amazing, straightforward statement, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now don't, don't get that like Jesus became something that he wasn't, okay? Made him Lord and Christ, right? 
These things made him that. No, 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 no. Jesus rose from the dead because he is Lord and Christ. It was the validation of the work that was already something his by right from his birth that is now fulfilled such that he is reigning now as both God and man on high. In other words, since he is the Messiah, Jesus is raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God and received the spirit from the Father and is still pouring that Holy Spirit out on people today. God's kingdom work continues today. You go, why are you, why are you preaching? Like we're supposed to be, we're supposed to be doing something a little bit more amped up. Like, and we'll get our worship going and we're excited about that, but why preach? Because preaching is what the Spirit uses to draw people to himself. It's the preaching, the foolishness of preaching that God uses by the power of the Holy Spirit to change a life. It's through the preaching of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus somehow in the mystery of the broken down simple humanity of me and a voice testifying that will be hoarser by every service. Testifying to people that God is pleased by his spirit to grab a hold of human hearts and draw them into himself. To give someone in here a sense of the weightiness of their own exile from God as a result of their own sin. One of the best things that could happen today if you don't know Jesus Christ is to feel a weight of conviction about your own sin. Evidently, as Peter was preaching his own message, it was happening to those who were listening. I didn't read this part, but can we see the effects of this message? Now, when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They were convicted about their circumstances, that they were exiles to God, separated from him as a result of their sin, and they're asking, what shall we do? Today, maybe someone today is asking that question. You would never get there on your own. You would have to get there through the proclamation of the word of God by the spirit of God, opening your eyes to see your sin before a holy God. You'd have to get all that going on, and preaching through it, something happens, and it's amazing, and the spirit comes, and he's got to get you there. But if you are there, you would be asking, what do I do? How do I become right with this holy God? How do I make sense of Easter for me today? And here's what Peter says. Are you ready? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. You mean not a life of penance? You mean I don't have to do a bunch of things to clean my life up? No, he says repent and be baptized. Really what baptism is, is faith activated. Really what brings you to Jesus Christ is repentance, a turning from your sin, a, a change of mind about your sin, about who God is, and a turning from your sin towards Jesus, trusting in Jesus, who he is, the Lord and Christ of all. 
the one who has brought forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross and rose from the grave, conquering sin and death for all who would put their faith in him. Therefore, repent and put your faith in Jesus. You know where that's evidenced? In baptism. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. This would have made sense to the people in the Old Testament. Show your participation in the new community that God is forming of his own people purchased by the blood of Jesus by going through water like the Israel of old did. Do that. Come through water like they were saved through water at the Red Sea. No, you're not ultimately saved by baptism, but you are saved through those waters. God does the saving. Jesus is the one who's accomplished it. But we demonstrate that we are leaving behind the old world of slavery to sin, and we are risen to new life with Jesus, a life that I no longer live, but he lives through me. We are testifying in the waters of baptism that we are freed from idols and forgiven of sins and gifted with this Holy Spirit, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And it's in the proclamation of the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit, by faith in Jesus, that you are incorporated into Christ, gifted every one of his benefits that he could give you. And all of that happens as we respond to the gospel, repent, and be baptized in the name of Jesus. If this is something that's convicted you, uh, we're going to have an opportunity for people to respond. There's a connect room right outside of our doors to the left, and I don't want to leave you in a place where you're like, man, I need to do something with what I'm hearing about who Jesus is, that he is the Lord, and he is the Christ, and he's died for my sins, and he's risen for my salvation. If you need to respond, we're going to have people you can connect to out in the lobby, but we are going to respond in faith as those who have come to Christ are looking to make that profession even now as they are baptized together.